How's everybody tonight? I have to find my spectacles or I cannot see anything. There we go. Hey, we're in Jeremiah 50. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Here's the good news. We have one more chapter of Jeremiah after tonight. And then we will <clears throat> jump uh, into Lamentations for the rest of the holiday season. <laughs> As we look at tonight, we're, there's, there's a really neat way, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jeremiah wraps up. And right now we're at the very end of the Oracle of the Nations. Remember where God gives his judgment over the nations. Because one of the things that the Bible very clearly teaches is the fact that God is one day going to judge all wickedness. And so every prophet has an oracle to the nations. And while God does have judgments he brings against Israel and the enemies of Israel, the point of the illustration or the stories of the oracles against the nation is the idea that there's a payday someday. And that one of the things we see in that is a common feature of mankind is man's ability to muck up everything, right? I mean, historically, we, we are not, if we get something good going, we will mess it up uh, because sin in the life of men uh, brings about a, what I like to call brokenness, but it's a, it's a sin brokenness. It's a result of sin in our life that leads us towards selfishness or, or corruption or what have you. And so what occurs is we find ourselves um, taking something, perhaps something God-given. You know, the easiest example is to look at government. God established government very early in the scriptures. And as he established uh, government and he laid out how that should run, uh, man has for, you know, 6,000 years plus corrupted it. There's never been a government that's been able to last. All human government does the same thing. It peaks, it deteriorates, it crumbles, a new one comes in. Uh, that's history, it, right? In a, in a, a quick synopsis, m there's nothing man does that lasts. And now we're going to, to take that and look at it with a comparison next to God's kingdom. What does the Bible declare about God's kingdom? Well, God's kingdom is eternal. So God's kingdom will never end. When Abraham said he spent his life living in tents because he was looking for a city whose maker was God. He said he was looking for a city that had foundations, so it was permanent. That's the idea, right? Tents don't have foundations. Tents have stakes, right? They, they are temporary. But he was looking for a city that had foundations, that was permanent, whose builder and maker was God. So what was Abraham saying? He's saying, I'm looking for the eternal. I'm looking for what God has, his kingdom, his plan, his purpose, God's redemption of man. That's why the book of Hebrews says, all of these men of faith lived out looking for the promise, never seeing its fulfillment. Because they're looking for the day. And so when the prophets would come together and they bring their oracles, the, one of the purposes of the oracle of the nations is God's judgment on wickedness. Now, specifically, that begins to, to happen when we look at God's judgment on Babylon. Now, when we look in the Bible, there are two metaphoric cities. They're real places, but the Bible uses them as metaphor. Jerusalem as the city of God and Babylon as the city of rebellion. So all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, right, at the Tower of Babel, right, we have the beginning of what would become the metaphor for Babylon of rebellion against God, rebellion against God. Read Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 18 just a little bit tonight. And when we do, it is symbolic, metaphoric of man's rebellion against God. 
So there is, as we look at the oracle of the nations and their prophecy from Jeremiah, specific prophecies to real Babylon and God's judgment of that nation, right? We know that real Babylon is going to be judged and the Medo-Persian empire is going to replace Babylon, right? God brings down kingdoms and establishes them, yes? So he's going to bring them down. But we're also going to see beyond that because there's language that Jeremiah is going to use that is like lifting up your eyes and looking beyond the city that's in front of you into the metaphor of the day when God's going to once and for all put down wickedness, when evil will finally be judged, when righteousness will reign. And so this is how Jeremiah wraps up. The point of Jeremiah's wrap-up is to try to come together under the idea of the hope of the restoration of God's people and the kingdom of God. And that starts... At the last oracle of the nations, Jeremiah 50 against Babylon. So let's look at it. The word of the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations, proclaim, set up a banner, proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed. So he's going to start talking about the deities behind Babylon. Now, if you've done a careful study of Psalm 82, you understand that there is at least a biblical basis that there is some reality behind the deities that were worshipped by the ancient lands, um, fallen angels. Uh, I often say there are false religions today that began by a visitation of an angel. An angel visited, uh, visited Muhammad in a cave and gave to him the Quran. It's interesting to me, and the Bible talks about fallen angels. The Bible talks about angels that come to deceive. Psalm 82 specifically says that God's going to judge those angels who should have been there to uh, encourage or uplift or minister to man rather than corrupting him. And so we see this idea. So when God says, hey, Baal's put to shame and Merodach, those were the false gods of the, of the Babylonian system. And, and God's saying, in essence, those gods and the idols that you worship, the, the people didn't actually believe the idol was the God. The idol was the doorway to speak to the God. So he's saying, look, these gods are going to be put to shame. Her images are going to be put to shame. Here's an interesting uh, Bible trivia thing that will probably never come up in a Bible trivia game. Uh, most of the time, when the Bible talks about the shame of idols, it's not the word idol. It is a word for uh, animal excrement uh, that they substitute for the word for idol. But that wouldn't look good in a Bible, so they, they call it idols. But that's, that's what the Old Testament prophets would, would call them. You know, hey, not only is Baal and Merodach going to be put to shame, but uh, the, the giant pile of crap that is all those idols, that's also going to be put to shame. And that's probably, maybe I shouldn't say it in church, but that's a lot tamer than what it says. So, so then it says in verse 3, here's what I want you to start to get. For out of the north a nation has come against her, <coughs> excuse me, which shall make her lamb a desolation, and none will dwell in it, both man and beast will flee away. There are figures of speech that Old Testament prophets use kind of regularly, and one of those is the idea of judgment coming from the north. So let me tell you why this is an issue. Babylon is conquered from the east. Now, Israel was conquered from the north because Babylon just happened to be north. But whenever judgment would come, God would say the judgment was coming from the north. So that the people knew when the prophet delivered that message, it, this is when it said the enemies are coming from the north, God is saying we're being judged for our wickedness. It was so that they would know this is not just, oh, we're going to be invaded. This is the language of judgment from God. And so when the same thing of Babylon, when God says you're going to be conquered from the north, he wants Babylon to understand those same things. Ancient Near East culture, the people would have understood this is Yahweh 
saying, now Babylon is standing before God. Just like everyone, everyone we've talked about before, right? The Bible teaches it is appointed unto man once to die and then? So everybody will stand before God. Nations stand before God in Scripture and God holds those nations accountable. So God uses Babylon's desire to conquer the world to accomplish his judgment on the nations, his judgment on Israel, but he can also hold Babylon accountable because God didn't decree and take away, he, allowed, he had Babylon doing what Babylon wanted to do. Does that make sense? Babylon's accomplishing their purpose. They don't know that they're doing God's purpose at the same time. So God holds Babylon accountable. He holds them accountable for the things that they've done. So he's letting them know that there is a desolation coming. Now, 539 B.C., which is probably oh, within, certainly within 100 years to the end of Jeremiah, um, Babylon's going to be conquered. Right? We know the story from Daniel. Yes? We know the story from Daniel. We know about uh, uh, Belshazzar. We know about him drinking out of the temple. Um, items. We know about the hand. Remember the hand that appeared and wrote on the wall? Many, many, tekel you farsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tonight your kingdom is taken from you. It will be given to the Medes and the Persians. And Cyrus, who Isaiah names by name in Isaiah 45, Cyrus is the guy who is the Lord's anointed to bring down Babylon. So the point of it coming from the north is to state this is God's judgment even though the enemy comes from the West. It's an it's a idiom for this is God moving against you and your false gods are all going to be put to shame. Verse 4, in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah will come together weeping as they come and they shall seek the Lord their God. That does not ever really happen. So there is always a remnant. There's a remnant that returns to Israel after the exile. But the majority of the Jews stay in Babylon. And keep in mind, when Babylon's conquered by the Medo-Persians, guys, there are some historians that say the people in the city of Babylon didn't know it for four days because there's no battle. The Medo-Persians basically just sneak in and take over and and whoops, what just happened? They're, everybody's wearing different uniforms today. But life in Babylon continued. It was still Babylon, right? So when we look at the, the scriptures and the scriptures talk about Babylon utterly being destroyed, understand that, that we're talking about God metaphorically utterly putting away all rebellion against God by man. Babylon today is just a, a, a bunch of sand, right? So there's no, but the book of Revelation still talks about Babylon, still talks about the destruction of Babylon, even though there is no Babylon. So either somebody's going to show up and rebuild Babylon, or Babylon is a metaphor for the rebellion of men, and it could be anywhere, right? Uh, last I checked, the United States is fairly rebellious against God, so I don't have a problem with the U.S. being Babylon. Um, but, you know, who knows in the future we just want to understand this is what this is the judgment that the lord is bringing when he says all of my people are going to come together and they're going to long to seek me that is looking future because there is a group of the exiles that will joyfully return to the land but the majority will stay behind that's not all of god's people coming together to rejoice to be with him but when jesus reigns as king what's that going to look like on the, the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 11, if, if the uh, grafting in of the Gentile by taking out the Jew, the grafting out of the Jew and grafting into the Gentile meant your salvation, what will it be when the Jew, when the nation is grafted back in? So there's this concept in Romans that talks about a reuniting of, of uh, the Jew to understand her Messiah. And what will that day be like? And the way Paul speaks is what great joy will be found when the, when the family of God comes together. So when he says, all of my people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they're all going to come together weeping as they come to seek the Lord their God. <clears throat> it's, he's looking beyond the exile. 
You can read about the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's going to be a small group that goes from there that goes back into the land. So he says, they will ask, the way to Zion with faces turned toward it. Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. So I don't want to be disappointing, but after the exile, they forgot. Right? Ezra and Nehemiah, 400 years of silence. Jesus shows up on the scene. They forgot. The point is, this is looking to the reunification of, of God, saving the righteous, establishing his kingdom, and judging the wicked. Are you tracking with me? I hope so. If not, feel free to ask me questions after. But here's what he's saying. My people have been lost sheep, and their sh shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. They've lost their way. And what did Jesus say when he came? Yeah, he's, he's saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, right? And he said, I've come for what? The lost sheep, right? I've come for the lost sheep. So at the time of Jesus, he's still saying, you guys are bad shepherds and what? I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So he's laying out this idea. They've forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them. So the flock is being destroyed. Their enemies have said, we're not guilty. So now he's looking at the enemy. It's like Babylon used by God to judge Israel. And he's like, Babylon saying, well, we're not guilty. We, we're just doing what God wanted us to do. And the Lord says, man, None of you guys checked with me. You, you did what was in your heart to do. You, you had no idea you were, you were doing what I had, had uh, uh, judged my people with. You had no idea that was. You say, we are not guilty for we have, <clears throat> for they have sinned against the Lord. Their habitation of righteousness the Lord and the hope of their fathers flee from the midst of Babylon. This is God speaking to his people. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans. Be like male goats before the flock. He's saying, get out of Babylon. Does that ring a bell to anybody? If you, if you read Revelation 18, there's a voice from heaven. Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Lest you uh, take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. So here you have God saying again to Babylon, just like in Revelation 18, hey, get out of her. Why is he saying that? What, what did he say to Lot when Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah? And God's judgment is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. What's, what is it that the Lord says? Uh, he sends his angels and he says, hey, you got to get out of here. Judgment's coming right? And so he's delivering this message. Hey, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So the sheep, my sheep need to leave. My sheep need to get out. God will not pour his judgment out upon the righteous. He will pull the righteous. He will deliver the righteous. That is not to say you won't be hungry when famine comes on the land. I'm just saying God's judgment, his wrath uh, in judgment on a nation. He, over and over again in scripture, uses language like this. Get out of her. I'm about to burn her down. Get out of her. I'm going to bring her down. So, verse 9. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north. And they will array themselves against her, for there she shall be taken... Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her will be sated, declares the Lord. So people, just like she was satisfied in the plunder of the world when she came to power, when she's brought down, others are going to plunder her and be satisfied with the plunder they bring. Uh, he says, um, you will rejoice, <clears throat> though you rejoice, Though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in a pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother will be shamed, she who bore you will be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert. 
Listen to the language. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she will not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Now, because you have almost the same language again in Revelation 18, this is why when we look at Babylon, we have to be careful that which is speaking to the nation that is there, which after the exile is brought down and the Medo-Persians inhabit it. And after the Medo-Persians, anybody know who comes next? Nope, one more before them. The Greeks. So the Greeks are going to come before them. They're going to conquer the Medo-Persians and what? They're going to move in. And then after them, the Romans. And they're going to move in. <clears throat> so it's going to be quite a while before people start to forget about Babylon. And Babylon just fades away into history. But as she does, the Bible never lets it fade. The Bible is still saying, Babylon, you'll be judged. Babylon, you'll be judged. You'll be a, a habitation for demonic spirits. When the Bible uses language like ostriches and hyenas, it's because Bible translators don't really know how to translate the words. So we talk about weird creatures. But the concept behind those weird creatures is really demonic ostriches and hyenas you and I we think of actual ostriches and hyenas but they're thinking of 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 shadow creatures creatures of of evil that the only inhabitants that'll be there like the picture is of God and Eden and the kingdom of God and this perfect paradise and then everything outside of that outside of the presence of God is just full of wickedness and God's ultimate delivery of that, using the language of Babylon. So when he, as he's talking about it, it's the wrath of the Lord that will be poured out, and she will become utter desolation. Now, there are some people who will say Babylon's utter desolation today, so it's fulfilled. But like I said, you're going to read the same thing in Revelation 18. And far as I'm concerned, Revelation is not done yet. So... There's at least one more Babylon falling, right? Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So, so we take a look at it. He goes on talking about the, the punishment of, of Babylon being, being fulfilled. Uh, she will not be inhabited in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by will be appalled. The world will be amazed. What does it say in Revelation 18? What are the people who watch the destruction of Babylon doing? They're mourning, they're crying, they're going to weep because the place where everybody used to spend all their money is gone now. And here you have similar language. The whole world that passes by is going to be blown away by her wounds. They're going to be appalled. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Babylon has fallen. I can't believe it's all come down. But if Babylon is a picture of a world system rising up in rebellion against a holy God and all the commercialism and all the whatever things you want to pile into that and that is the picture then that is speaking of that day when God rules and reigns as king and those things are finally put down how long did Israel battle with themselves to walk with God yeah, the, the whole time they've existed how long have you battled with yourself to walk with God so here's the hope at the end of Jeremiah. One day the battle will be over. One day the wickedness of man, the wickedness of the nations will once and for all be put down. And God's righteousness will endure. And that's what God's people have always, from Genesis to Revelation, been looking for. For the day when there is real justice. I mean, just look at our world. How divided are we? Just look at the church. How divided are we? Super divided. We're, we're divided every possible way you can be divided. Every possible thing that could divide us is divide us. And what, how did Jesus pray for his church? Lord, let them be unified. Just like me and the Father. That's pretty close unity, right? But So how's the enemy going to come against that? He brings division. 
And how does he do it? Well, just through normal life. Politics, pandemic, our responses to it, you know, the times when we're unloving toward others or when others are unloving toward us, all of those things drive a wedge into the church and the church becomes fractured. And when the church is fractured, she has little power. When the church is united, it's an amazing thing to behold. So that's, that was Jesus' prayer, right? So the, it ought to be the way we're working, with the things we're working toward. And you, we saw the early church fight over it, right? Right, we talked about it on Sunday. I only eat meat, or I only eat vegetables. Well, God loves people who eat vegetables more. No, God loves people who eat, more, eat meat more. Oh, you, eat, you ate meat sacrificed to an idol. I can't believe you would do such a thing. And so we had, even then, Paul's dealing with schismata, division. And what was his word to all of them? Hey, don't, don't put something in front of your brother to trip him up. Paul even said, I'll become all things to all men so I might by all means win some. So Paul said, hey, if I go over to this guy's house and he's, I, if I'm worried about where he, his meat come from, I'm not going to ask him. I'm just going to eat it. I'm just going to sit down. I want to, I want to find reasons to have fellowship, not reasons to break fellowship. And we see that. So when, when God would bring a word through Jeremiah to a fractured Israel, who's fractured similarly, it's a word of hope to them that there's a day coming when God's going to bring us together. That's what we long for, right? He, man has always wanted to be unified. Do you know how I know that? Because in Genesis 11, when man's unified, the Lord said, man, when you guys got your minds all together, you are nothing but trouble. Right? What happened in Genesis 11? The Lord said, I'm going to confuse your speech. And so you have multiple languages. And people did what? Divided. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we often talk about the kingdom of God in terms of one language. Right? Everyone being able to communicate. Everybody being united. The church being united. It's like, it's like <clears throat> God wants the church to be united and keep sin fractured. And we have this incredible desire to keep sin united and fracture the church. So these words of hope, they ought to bring hope to us to say, you know, I want to, we want to overcome that rebellion that's in our soul, <clears throat> that rebellion that's in us. So verse 14, he says, set yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen, her walls are thrown down. This is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance onto her and do to her as she has done. So this is God's justice coming down on, on the rebellion that Babylon symbolizes. Cut off from Babylon the sower, the one who handles the sickle in the time of harvest, because the sword of the oppressor. Everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. So you have this picture of Babylon as the original melting pot. The Assyrians were cruel. So the Assyrians would conquer you and kill you all the way back. So they're bringing you back home for a parade. And like every whatever mile, they're going to stick somebody up on a spike and leave them on the side of the road. And if they get all the way to where the parade was going to go and all the prisoners are gone, oh well. Babylon didn't do that. Babylon had a melting pot. They assimilated cultures. They brought cultures into their society. Sound like somebody else? They brought cultures into their society and they all came in and, and that was part of the strength of Babylon. But here in this scripture it says there's a day coming when all the people are going to go back to their own land. Everybody's leaving. Everybody going back. Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the last days, nation would rise up against nation. Goyim against Goyim. Ethnos against ethnos. 
The idea is that we would be divided by our ethnicity. Huh. Well, it's a good thing that's not happening yet, because otherwise we might really start to get worried about the condition of our world, right? But here he's talking about the day when, when that city of rebellion is going to disperse and people are going to return. They're going to go back to, to uh, their own land. They're going back. I, to me, it, look, it's, it just seems like a melting pot being disassembled and people <clears throat> going back under uh, their own banners. Their own banners. A fragmentation of Babylon which is exactly what happened in Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis, right? God fragmenting the unity behind sin and rebellion against God and the desire to bring that unity through Christ. He goes on, verse 17, Israel is a hundred sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And then Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gnawed at his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land. As I punish the king of Assyria, I will restore Israel to his pasture and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan and his desire will be satisfied in the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. So what's the Lord saying? The same way I brought down Assyria. So if you look, this comes up in Revelation again when we talk about the kingdoms of the world. But you have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, see if I miss any, uh, Medo-Persian, Greek, Rome, and a revived Roman Empire. So you have seven great kingdoms that the Bible talks about. That doesn't mean there's only seven great kingdoms in the world. He's just using these seven as an example. What happens in each one? Rise to power, superpower. Everybody can't imagine a power as great as them. Then the next time you look at them, they're gone. Assyria is there. God judged Assyria. Assyria went down. Who came up? Babylon. God judged Babylon. What happened? Babylon come down. Medo-Persians come up. What did God say in Daniel? Who raises up kings? Who raises up kingdoms? Who establishes these things? The Lord does. God is moving. God is is working. God is still working in this. And so as we look at it, he's saying, look, Israel was judged by Assyria. That's the northern kingdom. Judah was judged by Babylon. That's the southern kingdom. The Lord says, the same way I brought, I brought uh, Syria down, I'm going to bring Babylon down. But you know, God didn't do it during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting. I think he doesn't bring it down in the time of Nebuchadnezzar is because Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer. I think we read about it in Daniel chapter 4. After Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for seven years, right, and he still has his kingdom, he writes Daniel chapter 4, and he commands all the people of Babylon to worship Yahweh. He says, don't, don't, don't bow to my, that, just, just ignore that big statue I made. Let's, let's ignore that. Let's pretend I didn't do that. Let's just worship Yahweh. He is the God of gods. He raises up kings. That's who says it, Nebuchadnezzar. So when we look at it, I think God, God holds Nebuchadnezzar through. It's, it's going to be uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, through Nebuchadnezzar's line. I think it's two. I think it's his grandson. Um, I'll have to look. But I think it's his grandson who ultimately is conquered by the Medo-Persians. So we have this taking place. We have Israel being promised to come back to the land. That occurs, right? The exile returns. Israel becomes a nation again. Israel enters back into the land. <laughs> then as now, I will restore Israel to her pasture. She's going back to the land she had. And that's exactly what God did. Uh, in, that, in those days, it says, and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there will be none. So I've been to Israel like 11 times. I have never had a hard time finding iniquity there. So when the Lord says iniquity, they're not going to sin anymore there. What do you think he's referring to? Don't you think God's referring to, yes, this is a reprieve and she's coming back and the nation's going to go, but there's a day coming when there won't be sin there. 
because Christ will rule and reign and God's people will be together and, and it will be the kingdom that the, that the Lord has promised. <laughs> he also is saying, look, there's going to be forgiveness. Look what he says. You'll look for iniquity and you will find none and sin in Judah and none will be found for I will pardon those I leave as a remnant. So God's talking about the forgiveness of sins, yes? Now you have a, a promise in Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel 33, the nation, Ezekiel is writing to the people who are in exile. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel continues to minister to those who were taken in slave, as slaves. And so Ezekiel said, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, surely our transgression, <coughs> our sin is upon us. And we rot away because of them. How can we live? So the people are recognizing their guilt. And they're saying, oh, Lord, how can we live with our guilt? We have sinned. There's no temple. There's no, there's no plan of restoration. What are we going to do? Now, you and I, we know what the future holds, don't we? We know. We know the work that God is going to do. Here's what the Lord says. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should repent and live. Repent. Turn back from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? God says, I'm going to forgive them. When they repent, does God forgive them? Yeah. Who does he charge their sin to? All their sin gets charged to the cross. And the cross is future for them, right? Past for us. God charges that sin. When people repent, God pardons iniquity. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love, in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far. He shall remove our transgressions from us. How does he accomplish it? Through Jesus Christ, right? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. So verse 21, Jeremiah 50, he continues, go up against the land of Merathame and against the inhabitants of Pekod. Merathame, it's interesting. Merathame means to rebel. And Pakud, uh, Pakud means to punish. So it's like God uses names of two cities. He picks them out. And he says, look, I want you to go up against rebellion and punishment. I want you to go against those places. Kill, devote them to destruction, declares the Lord, and do all that I have commanded you. The noise of battle is in the land. Great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth is cut down. So the people who were the hammer are now being hammered. <laughs> because it's appointed unto man once to die and then judgment everyone has to have made their peace with god there's no there's no, nobody get there's no pass there's no pass and there's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved right and that's the name of christ jesus so he goes on the hammer will be broken down how babylon has become a horror among the nations so i will set a snare for you and you will be taken O babylon and you did not know it. You were found and caught. Here's the reason. Because, one, you opposed the Lord. That's the idea of rebellion. <clears throat> You're rebelling against what God is doing. So the Lord has opened the armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. When God brings judgment against a nation, that's how God terms it, as his wrath. He's, he is replacing one for another. There, there is one more, at least, one more great day coming spoken of as God's wrath where he replaces the kingdoms of this world with the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And we call that the period of God's wrath. The tribulation period, God exchanging 
the kingdoms of men with the kingdoms of God. Everything before that is an illustration of that, of that event taking place. So the Lord's bringing out the weapons of his wrath for the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. So come against her from every quarter, open her granaries, pile her up like heaps of grain and devote her to destruction. Let nothing be left in her. Kill all her bulls. This is a, 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 an idiom for her soldiers. The idea that, that all the soldiers are going to be put to the slaughter. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them. For their day has come, the time of their punishment. A voice, they flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance for his temple. Vengeance for his temple. So you, you hear the voice of people crying out uh, from the land of Babylon, declaring the vengeance of God has come. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, and camp around her. Let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done. For she has proudly defied the Lord. There's the second issue. First issue is rebellion. What's the source of that rebellion? Pride. How many times does the Bible say God resists pride? God hates pride. Because pride is that which causes man to rise up against God. We won't have you to rule over us. What is that if it's not the sin of rebellion? Of self-reliance. Of Independence Day. Isn't that how the fall of man begins? Right? It starts with man declaring his independence and ends with man uh, outright in outright rebellion against God. So here... The Lord is saying, it's, it's your pride uh, because you have proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men will fall in the squares. Her soldiers will be destroyed on the day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O proud one. That's what the Lord declares. I will resist the proud, give grace to the humble. You know, the Bible says that we are to um, submit to the Lord God and resist the devil and he will, we've heard it before, right? That's the same word for how God is with the proud. When God says, I resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. The same way man is called to resist the devil, God resists the proud. Does not like pride. Pride is that which would rise up <clears throat> ultimately against him and so the lord will put it down the proud one will stumble and fall and there will be none to raise him up i will kindle a fire in his cities and it will devour all who are around them so thus says the lord of hosts the people of israel are oppressed <clears throat> the people of judah with them <clears throat> all who took them captive have held them fast they refuse to let them go their redeemer is strong the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Lord of the angel armies. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter cuts off Malchus' ear, you remember? Peter, don't you know? I don't need somebody to swing a sword for me. I could call... 10,000 angels, that's pride. At the time, the concept of 10,000 is the highest number they had. <laughs> so the point is, you know, the, Jesus is saying, dude, to be honest, one angel killed uh, 185,000 men. I, I don't think he needs too many. If he brought 10,000, that'd be a problem, wouldn't it? But he is the captain of the Lord's army. Right? And Joshua, captain of the Lord's army. You remember Joshua entering into the land and he comes upon this man. He sees a man in armor walking and he says, hey, are you for us or for them? You remember? And the captain of the Lord's army says, no, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. I am Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the angel armies. Oh, he goes by another name. You know it. Jesus. 
Who is the Redeemer? Jesus. Jesus is the Redeemer. Who was the, the angel of Yahweh? The messenger of Yahweh. The one who would deliver the word of Yahweh to the people. John 1, how's he say it? I, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So you have this incredible picture, right? His redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts, the captain of the Lord's army is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. Who comes back in, in Revelation chapter 19 and delivers the people? And where does he come back? Where's that place called? Comes back to Har Megiddo, right? The plains of Armageddon, we call it, yeah? And what does he do? He goes from Basra all the way to the, to the temple to what? Deliver his people from the enemies of the Lord who are coming to destroy them. And, and really, regardless as to whether it's literal or not, he's saying, I'm going to utterly once and for all destroy wickedness, and I'm going to save my people. Is that what Jesus has done? And we look forward to that day. We look forward to that time when the lion of the tribe of Judah will come. He says, a sword is against the Chaldeans. He's going to use this phrase several times. A sword against the Chaldeans and against the inhabitants of Babylon, against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the diviners. They have become fools. A sword against her warriors that they may be destroyed. A sword against her horses and against her chariots and against all foreign troops in her midst that they may become women. Sorry. In Jeremiah's day, that was not looked at quite as bad as it is today. But it's, uh, he's, the concept was in the ancient world, women were not the people you were afraid of in battle. So I understand a woman with an AR could be just as dangerous as a guy. But it's a little different back then. So he's saying they will become like, like women, like someone in their mind that needs to be rescued. A sword against all treasures, all her treasures that they may be plundered. So the Lord's judging it all, everything, every system. Their system of wisdom, right? That's what he's talking about when he says against uh, her wise men, her officials, their, their government. A sword is against the diviners, those who think they know the future. The sword is against the warriors, the, the battlers. A sword is against their horses. That's their, their mode of fighting. God is judging it all. When Jesus returns in the, in the Valley of Armageddon, we have the, the last final battle. You know he doesn't need us to fight, right? He fights alone. That's what the Bible declares. In fact, when he's described, they say, where have you been and what is all over you? And he says, I'm, I've been trampling the grapes of wrath alone. And he describes the blood of his enemies being splattered all over him. And the idea, this is the scripture that talks about the blood will flow to the horse's bridle for 185 miles. That's a long ways. So, the idea, utter destruction, right? There's, there's nothing that will save you on that day. Man must come to Christ before that time. That time is judgment day. Prior to that, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever would set down his pride humble himself before the Lord, would be exalted by the Lord. According to, to Acts chapter 10, whoever, whoever fears the Lord and, and calls upon his name, the Lord will save. That's what they say in Acts chapter 10. Oh, now the Lord has poured out his spirit on those crazy Gentiles. Can you believe that? It just appears whoever calls on his name. <laughs> well, praise God. So, the whole place judged, verse 38, 
a drought against her waters that they may be dried up. Oh, that doesn't sound familiar to you. Just, just take some time and scour Revelation 6 through 19. A drought will come upon her waters. They'll be dried up. It will be a land of images. <clears throat> and they are mad over idols. Here's where we're talking about the, the pictures of demons. Therefore, wild beasts will dwell with hyenas in Babylon. Ostriches shall, shall dwell in her. Those are words people don't know how to translate. They know there's some kind of being, some kind of, of thing. They just go jackal. Some say jackal. Sometimes King James will call them dragons. You know, it just depends. But when, we, when you see that, when you look at translation, you see them stumbling for what to put in there. That tells us that, that, hey, there's something here we don't totally understand. We just know it's not good. Right? If I said a big old red dragon is going to come to devour you, 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 you may not believe that a, a big dragon's going to come, but you know whatever's coming is bad. Right? Well, that's not good. Even if it's a dude with a red dragon tattoo, it's probably not good. <laughs> so as we look at it, there's, there's this idea. It, it's uh, de- some type of demonic uh, activity. What does Revelation talk about? Isn't there something about demonic activity in Revelation? Isn't there an angel that comes out of the heavens, goes to the abuso, the bottomless pit, pit where God chained up the worst of the fallen angels? And doesn't that angel open the pit? Hmm. What does the Bible call them? They come out like locusts. Well, I'm telling you, it's not locusts. Right? They come out like locusts. The locusts who have a king. What's the king's name? You remember? The king's name is Apollyon or Abaddon. You know what those words mean? Destroyer. What do you think they're coming to do? Okay. So, uh, you know, he doesn't, whoever it is doesn't have to have an ID that says Apollyon on it. He's just coming to destroy, to wipe out, to abolish. And he may be full-on demon. I, I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't even have a problem if it's a dragon, to be honest with you. If whatever God says, it comes out of that pit, that comes out of that pit, and it's bad. It's bad. The Lord is describing this judgment. They're going to be in this place as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, folks, nobody can find Sodom and Gomorrah today. What about Babylon? You find Babylon on a map. Nobody living there. But you can't find Sodom and Gomorrah on a map. Sodom and Gomorrah is so utterly destroyed... Some people say it's at the bottom of the Dead Sea. I don't know. I just know it's all gone. G-O-N-E. The Lord says there will be a day when the rebellion of man and the wickedness of man will once and for all be utterly abolished like Sodom and Gomorrah. We still got it today. But there will be a day. No man will sojourn in her. There will be utter destruction of these things. 41, behold, a people comes from the north. There it is again, a mighty nation. Many kings are stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And they lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel. They have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed like a man for battle against you. O daughter of Babylon, the king of Babylon heard the report of them, and his hands fell helpless. You remember what happened when the hand wrote, many, many, tekel you farsin? says that the king's loins were loosed. So I don't have to describe what that is. (laughs) If you just want to think about it for a while, you might come up with it. What's he describing here? He's describing the king being afraid when he hears about the armies coming. He'll feel hopeless. Anguish sees them. Pain is a woman in labor. <clears throat> Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? 
Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan of the Lord that the Lord has made against Babylon and the purposes that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of the flock will be drug away. The fold will be appalled at their fate. At the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble. And her cry will be heard among the nations. What I want us to understand is there are two pictures being talked about in the judgment of Babylon. There's Babylon being conquered by the Medo-Persians, the king being so afraid that his loins are loosed, the, the idea that God is going to put down the kingdom of Babylon in judgment and he's going to raise up another kingdom. But there's more than that. There's the idea that, hey, there will be a day when Babylon, which signifies a rebellion of man against God, will once and for all be totally done. There will be a day. That's why when we come through these scriptures, we want to try to see the intent, the intent that God has, so that we can find the hope. Otherwise, it sounds like bad news all the time. But if we understand that the good news is there will be an end to our battle against wickedness, and there will be a day when righteousness will reign forever. And that will be a glorious day. And it's worth hoping in. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We come before you. We thank you for the opportunity we have, God, to study Jeremiah. And we're excited, Lord, to, to, uh, to finish Jeremiah out next week. And also, Lord, to begin the journey of the great sorrow that uh, Jeremiah feels over the wickedness of men and the destruction that it brings. And Lord, I pray you just teach us to see with your eyes. Help us, help us to see things the way you see. We, we have such a tendency to, to only be able to relate to, to how, we, how we think something is uh, up for us or, or we make things very personal and we, we don't see how it is for you. We're frustrated with somebody who annoys us or is a thorn in our side after a year, or two years, or ten years. And we can't imagine a God who's been long-suffering for 10,000. We, we, we struggle to understand the patience and long-suffering who though there were times when he did judge wickedness and hold nations accountable for their rebellion against God, he never did it without providing a word to the people. And if you repent, the Lord say, I will relent. The Assyrians did it in the book of Jonah. So I would say every nation would have an opportunity Perhaps we have our opportunity now to put our eyes back on the Lord and off of ourselves, to be able to believe in the power of God and in his purpose. For he has brought these things to pass as he intends to bring them. So, Lord, we trust you. We look to you. We thank you for the word of hope. And we do long for that day when there will be no more battle against my sin nature and I won't have to bite my tongue and, and I won't have to, to fight against these things, but rather I can cast them before the feet of my Savior and watch him purge me like he purged Isaiah. To be set free from the brokenness in man and receive the wholeness of salvation in its final state. For we are justified by faith. We are being sanctified through a process God is making us more holy, but there will be a day 
when there will be the glorification of the Lord and the final stage of salvation will take place. And this is what God describes. The end of all wickedness and the establishment of righteousness. God, be glorified in this place. We love you. Help us walk with you and be who you want us to be in these days. And we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.